So I invite you to take your Bibles and let's open to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 18 to verse 31. And even as, as we read it, um, I will say it again in the sermon, but notice the, again the Mark and Sandwich. That's where Jesus begins by predicting the failure of the disciples in the middle or the failure of Judas in the middle is the Passover and then at the end another prediction of failure. So it's failure, failure and right in the middle is Jesus' Passover which is great news for us um, who fail Jesus often and God often. But let's read together just hear now God's words as we read it. Mark 14 from verse 18. And as they were reclining at table... And eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that Jesus, you have paid it all. That our sins are washed away by your blood. And thank you, Lord, that you did not do that for us when we were good. But as your word says, even in spite of our sin and our evil, you have loved us. You have given yourself for us. Lord, I pray that you will draw our eyes to Christ. Help us to see him and to see his grace afresh this, this afternoon. And let your kindness and your mercy and your grace lead us to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is instituting one of the two ordinances of the church, right? The first one is baptism. And in baptism, it's where the one believer becomes part of the many. It's the one believer becoming part of the, the, the many, the church. And the Lord's Supper, it's the opposite. In the Lord's Supper, it's the many becoming one. The many, as we break the bread and eat together and drink together, we, we remember our unity and that Christ has died for us and that we belong to him and belong to one another. What's interesting is Mark doesn't focus so much on the theology of, of the Lord's Supper, but rather he puts the emphasis on for whom the Lord's Supper was for. For the unworthy, for the failing, for the cowardly disciples. Remember that this is a, that sandwich that I've spoke about, the beginning, 
And the end is both the same. We see Jesus predicting the failure, ultimate failure of Judas, and then again, the failure of all of his disciples. And that just reminds us that Jesus is God. He knows the future. He knows future events. He can prophesy perfectly what will happen, including all of the sins of his people, which is very interesting if you think about it. Jesus knows your every sin before you will die, and he still died for you, and he still loved you. So yes, right in the middle, we see what? The Lord's Supper, right in the middle of the sandwich. And the supper is given to every disciple, everyone, even those who in a very short moment will deny him three times. So the main point of this narrative by, by Mark is simple, and I quote from one commentator. He says, it is not for the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly and unfaithful followers. So beloved, as we even walk through this text, let, let's receive this afternoon afresh the unfailing love of Christ for your ever-failing love for him. Let us receive that afresh and let that love and that grace that you receive from him lead you to repentance, lead you to stop your sin and trust him and follow him. So we'll, we'll follow the, the sandwich structure in our outline as well, the prediction of failure, the Passover, and then lastly, again, the prediction of failure. So our text opens with Jesus' prediction of the worst failure imaginable, the very betrayal of the Son of God by one of his own. Look at verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now remember what we said last time as well, that there were probably more people here at the Last Supper than just the twelve. Probably the family of um, the house they were living or they were, they were at was there. And also probably some of the women disciples or some of the other disciples of Jesus was also there. So when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, that's not clear at all because everybody was eating. So it could be anyone. It could be anyone who's eating now with him. So that's why they ask in verse 19, everyone, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Going down the road, Lord, is it me? Is it me? And then Jesus brings it a bit closer to home and he says in verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So now he narrows it down from the bigger group and he says, it is one of the twelve. Can you imagine the shock of the people? All of them might have expected somebody on the outside of the twelve disciples. Jesus says, no, it's one of the twelve. And then he brings it even closer. He says, it's the person that dips his bread into the dish. Now, at this, at this, um, this, this Passover meal, there would probably be around several uh, bowls in which you can dip your bread. So if you are sharing a bowl, you are sitting very, very close to one another. So this is so close that Judas was sharing the same bowl with Christ. And what makes this even worse is that that symbol of dipping bread into the same bowl symbolized your unity, your love, your fellowship, and your trust with this person. You cannot get a worse betrayal than this. This was the, one of the closest people to Christ who betrayed him. And that is why this person's punishment is also beyond imagination. Look at verse 21 again, just as a reminder. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Jesus says, it would have been better for Judas if he was never born. Because eternity in hell is that bad. It's that bad. And that should cause all of us to be afraid to sin. At least. <laughs> it should cause us to think twice if we, should, if we want to sin or not. But that's the first point. That's the first part of the sandwich. It is Jesus predicts the ultimate failure of one of his own, namely Judas. But now at the very heart, at the middle part of the sandwich, we see the second point, the Passover lamb for all. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Look at verse 22 verse to 24. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now in this stage of redemptive history, at this moment in history, this is completely new. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking the Passover, showing the Passover and all of its events, and he says that that was only a shadow of what I'm about to do. It was the custom of the Jews to partake of the Passover meal in remembrance of how God freed them from their slavery in Egypt. That's why they ate. That's why they drank. They drank and they ate to remember their freedom from their slavery in Egypt. Remember what the very first Passover was. It was at the 10th plague in, in, in Egypt. The Jews had to take a, 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 a lamb, an innocent lamb, one year old, without spot, without wrinkle, perfect lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on the doorpost, and then eat that very night the lamb. They were to eat it with their, sta their staffs in their hands and their sandals on their feet because they had to leave quickly. So the idea was very shortly they're going to leave. That's why they had was eating it and also had it, having it unleavened as well. And as they were leaving their slavery from Egypt, they went to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, and there they made a covenant with God by blood. Listen to Exodus, Exodus 30, uh, 24, verse 6 to 8. Exodus 24, verse 6 to 8. He says, Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you see the picture here? The innocent has died for the, the guilty. God has saved them through blood. And what they need to do, every time now when they eat the Passover, they remember how they've been freed from slavery, brought into a covenant with their God through blood. But what does Jesus say? He takes the bread, he takes the cup, and what does he say about it? This is my body. Luke 22 verse 19 adds, he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, here is the real exodus. Here is the real salvation from your slavery, of your sin. Here is the real Passover lamb that's going to be slaughtered. My body, my body, my life will save you from your slavery, from your sins. And now instead of remembering the exodus and remembering the 10th tenth, tenth plague, we are remembering Jesus. We think of him when we think about our freedom from our slavery. Remember what John called Jesus, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And here's the amazing parallel. Here's the parallel you need to see with this. Just as the angel of death passed over those first Israelites when, he, when the angel saw the blood on the doorpost, so God will pass over all of us who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of our hearts and he will spare us from his wrath and we will be saved. It's the picture of Noah and the ark. When we are in Christ, we will be spared from the flood. In the same way, if you are in Christ, he's your Passover lamb, the blood cleanses you and you will be spared, passed over God's wrath. There is really no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. So that is what Jesus is doing. This is what, he, what the Passover means. Now let me take, just make quickly two important clarifications about this topic of the Passover because there is a lot of misconception about Jesus' blood, him as our Passover lamb, and I, I, I know this will be important for us. The first clarification is that this does not mean that since we are united to Christ, that his blood covers us and covers all our sins, that nothing bad will happen to you because you are under his blood. There's a very, very popular teaching, saying, prayer style, I don't know, that takes the blood of Jesus and puts it over your car, puts it over your wallet, puts it over your children, and they plead the blood over these objects or over themselves. And the, the thought is, if it's covered by the blood, you are safe from harm. Almost like Christian um, Shangoma, right? If you just put the right words and you put the blood over, then it's, it's safe. You and I must just plead the blood. You must cover the blood by faith over the thing that you want to be protected. But that is not what the Bible teaches the Passover was not a Passover, even at the beginning, from just general suffering and general sickness. It was a Passover from the judgment of God to die. That was what the Passover was for. And similarly now, the Passover with Jesus, he didn't come to save us from every sickness, every disease, every suffering in this life, although he will do that when he comes back. But he came primarily to save us from our sins, to, to, to cause us to be spared from God's judgment which, where we will die the second time if we do not repent forever in hell. So that is, that's a misconception of the Passover. We should just get that right. But the second implication, second clarification I want to make is this as well, is that this implies, if you understand the Passover correctly, that Christians no longer need to keep the Passover as it was commanded in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Because the Passover is the fulfillment, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover. So every time we gather as a church, every time we have communion, we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are celebrating the true Passover because we are remembering Him. We're remembering Christ. Not just a shadow type or a, a shadow version of the Passover. Now, I say that because there's also a very popular teaching today called the Hebrew Roots Movement. It's an it's a attempt to go back to the Old Covenant and keep some of the Old Covenant festivals, the Old Covenant laws. Now, just to be clear, I know there are some people in that movement who, are, who truly is saved and does love the Lord and we will share the same heaven. But there's also some people in that movement who completely rejects the authority of the Apostle Paul as inspired by the Spirit 
and says that unless you keep the feasts, the laws, and the commandments, you will not be saved, which makes the law then a requirement for you to be saved. And they would point to passages like this. They would say, see, even Jesus kept the Passover, so we should too. Answer, we are keeping the Passover. Every Lord's Supper, every Sunday we come together when we eat the, the Lord's Supper, we are keeping the Passover. So, beloved, don't let anybody rob you of your freedom in Christ. We are freed, freed from the law. We are no longer under the law, under its obligations. We are freed. We are now bound to a new master, a new lawgiver, which is Christ himself, a new covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, he says, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, Luke, oh, Mark doesn't say it's the new covenant, but the other gospels, Luke adds the all important, it's the new covenant. And if you were a Jew, you would have immediately knew what Jesus was referring to because the new covenant was prophesied and talked about in the Old Testament. Listen to Jeremiah yeah, this is one of the, those verses you can easily remember because it's Jeremiah 31, 31. So just double the number. 31, 31. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, in the Old Covenant, the law was outside of us. But now in the New Covenant, the law is written inside of us. And what's the summary of the law and the prophets? Love. Love for God. Love for people. And you keep every law. Just do that. And also, another difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is everyone in the New Covenant is truly saved. Whereas, not everybody in the Old Covenant was saved. And another one is that everyone in the new covenant will remain saved. They will never lose that because God himself has written his law on our hearts. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving us the new covenant in his blood. And then Jesus shows us there's even a future element of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So remember, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future element of the Lord's Supper. The past is obvious. We look back to the cross. We remember what Jesus did. We, we celebrate our freedom from our slavery, from sin, through Christ's blood. The present element is that fellowship we enjoy with God at that moment. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have communion with God. We have communion with Jesus, and we have communion with one another, and we, our joy in God and our commitment to Him and to one another is refreshed. That's the present element. And then there's a future element as well when we can. So even the Lord's Supper at church is not the real thing, it's the shadow of the real thing. So as the Passover of the old covenant was the shadow of the new Passover, so the new Passover is the shadow of the future Passover when Jesus comes again, when we will be with Him forever. 
We will see him and enjoy the Lord's Supper in presence, in his presence. Remember, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And I believe that will be fulfilled in Revelations 19, verses 7 to 9. Listen to Revelations 19. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelations 19 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved, that is a day to look forward to. You will then enjoy the Lord's Supper with the Lord Himself. No more waiting. No more longing, sighing of our spirits every time we sin. We will be freed from our sin. And we will be with Him. So beloved, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's that wonderful reminder that even this life is not it. Even this experience we have is just a shadow of that experience when we will be with Him. This life is not the end. This life is short. Even our partaking of the Lord's Supper is just by the shadow of that true one. And here's the key statement. What Mark wants us to see is verse 23. Notice carefully who partook of the Lord's Supper in verse 23. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to, to them, and they all drank of it. They all drank. Every one of them. And that leads us to our third point. The prediction of failure again. But this time Jesus says, all of those who drank, all of them will fall away. Notice what he says in verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now here Jesus is quoting Zechariah. And again, the emphasis is on God's sovereignty. The cross, it's God who strikes the shepherd. It wasn't man who was the ultimate deciding factor to kill Jesus. Ultimately, it was God himself who killed Jesus, who sacrificed him on the cross because he loved us. And Jesus went willingly. He laid down his life for us as well. And that striking of the shepherd will cause the sheep to be, to be scattered. But what I love about Jesus is even in these moments when he knows they will fail him, he even shepherds them because he says to them what they must do after they have failed. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, go to Galilee. I'll be there. He reminds them that he will be raised. Their failing is not final. He will meet them again. It's beautiful that where he began his relationship with them, he called his disciples at Galilee is where he will meet his disciples again at Galilee to restore him, restore them to himself. Where they began, that's where they ended. But as usual, Peter is a bit too self-confident. Look at what he says. I find it very um, funny, to be honest, what he says in verse 29. He says, Peter said to them, to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So notice what he says. He's pointing fingers to all the other disciples. And he says, I can understand why they will fall away. Because obviously they're not me. But I, Lord, I will never do that. I am Peter. I am the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, right? <laughs> no. I am Peter. I will never 
fall away. But Jesus quickly humbles him. Look at what he says in verse 30. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus says, I'll give you a few hours. Let's see how you do. A few hours. And then you will fall away. Even worse than that, you won't just fall away. You will, do, you will deny me three times. That shows that this was not just a lapse of faith. This was an intentional thing of Peter that he did. And remember what Jesus said, his frightful warnings about those who deny him. Remember what he said? Matthew 10 verse 33, he says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And in Mark 8 verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Even Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we deny him, he will deny us. So that's a consistent theme in the Bible. Do you see how serious it is to deny Christ, to deny him? This is what Peter would do in just a few hours from now. And no surprise, since all the disciples still didn't understand why Jesus came or what he's about to do, they echoed Peter's words in verse 31. Look at verse 31. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The irony is of these words is that it's usually when we think we are strong that we are at our weakest. It's usually when we are self-reliant Trusting in our own ability to be holy or to stand in courage that we fail the, the worst. And the opposite as well. It's often when we realize that we are weak and unable and we rely on Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit that we stand up and that we obey. Remember that verse 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, do you see what the Holy Spirit is telling us here through Mark? It is not your strength. It is not your resolve to follow Jesus till the end. It's not your worthiness and your love for him which makes Jesus loves you. No, the truth is that we all fail like this. All of us have a denial story to tell of how we have failed or, or cowered away in fear instead of in boldness. Sometimes we break even our own ideal. We would say, I will never do that. And then we do the very thing that we've condemned in others. But listen to me. This is the good news. Jesus didn't die for the worthy. He didn't die for those who think they are healthy. He didn't wait for you to stand up for him before he extended his love to you. Jesus came for the sick he came for those who would fail him over and over and over again. He came for the very ones who deny him. In short, his love and grace for you is not dependent on you. The main point of our text could be summarized with Romans 5 verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8, listen to this. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so beloved let me close with two applications i think there are two ways we can apply this text to us first be humble 
over your own ability to stand. Be humble over your own ability to stand. Jesus said, without him, we can do how much? Nothing. And the opposite is true as well. The other side of the coin, through Christ, we can do all things. In our own strength, we will fall. But by the Holy Spirit strengthening us, sanctifying us, filling us, we can, we can overcome. In our natural ability, if we would rely on ourselves, if we would stand on our own strength, on our own legs, we would collapse. Sometimes our sufferings and our trials are so much that we are ready to deny God. And then God comes with his promise and says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect through weakness. So beloved, humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Even as a born again Christian, you can't do this on your own. You can do nothing without Him. So early in the morning, be urgent to find yourself in the presence of God. Be urgent to find yourself in the Word. Be urgent to pray and ask God for the strength not to lead you into temptation. By the way, that should be a daily prayer. If you know that you are going into a difficult situation, pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So humble yourself and rely on His all-sufficient grace for your every need. God is faithful. He will cause us to stand. And if we fail, He will restore us. So be humble. Secondly, and most importantly, second application of this text is your identity as a person, as a Christian, is not mainly defined by your failure, but by Christ's love for you. Your identity is not mainly defined by your failure, but by Christ's love for you. If I were to ask you this question, what is the most common way the Bible speaks of Christians in the Bible? What would be your answer? Sinner, wicked, failure, is that what you would say? All of them are wrong. The Bible, the most frequent way the Bible speaks of Christians is saint, beloved, adopted, accepted in Christ, righteous, chosen. Because who you are is no longer defined by your failures, by what Christ has did for you. Who you are is now defined by Christ's love despite your failures. That's who you are now. Is that the way you see yourself? Do you agree with God that this is who you are, Christian? Listen, you, don't, you shouldn't just be humble enough to believe that you are weak and unable to do anything on your own. But you should also be humble enough to believe God's love for you despite your sins. Be humble enough to accept who you are in Christ. That this is who you are. Believe that His grace can and will cover all your sins. Believe that God is not disgusted with you anymore because of your sins. Because He has placed it on Christ. He has forsaken Christ. He will never forsake you. Believe and rest that Jesus gave His body, His blood, for us while we were evil. While we were still sinners. And let that truth set you free from your guilt let that truth set you free from your own condemnation. Remember that just as, Je just as Jesus knew every sin of his disciples, 
of Peter, of how he will curse himself. We will look at that as well in, in just a few weeks. How he cursed himself to deny Jesus. Jesus knew that and yet he loved him. Yet he chose him and yet he died for him. And in the same way, beloved, Jesus knows all your sins. And everyone that you will still do. And yet he did not change his mind. And he still loved you. So beloved, come. Come as you are. Come this afternoon. Come as you are and stop looking to yourself. The more you would look inside, the more you will find your sin. So look to Christ. Look to Him. If you repent, if you put your trust in Christ, He will receive you, forgive you, and cleanse you, and make you a saint forever. One of His own people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we humble ourselves this afternoon. Lord, I suspect that one of the biggest reasons why we fail is because we think that we can stand when we can't. Because without you, we can do nothing, and through you, we can do all things. So, Father, please help us to stop relying on our own willpower, our own strength, our own ability. Help us to rely on you as a, as a child relies on their parent. Father, help us to accept Christ, to love Christ, to look to Him, to look away from ourselves, to look to the blood of the Lamb that was slain for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you know our sins, past, present, and future, and that you have died for our sins, past, present, and future. And that truly nothing, not even ourselves, not even our own failures, can ever separate us from your love. Lord, we rejoice in this and we ask you, Lord, that you will help us to believe this. Help us to fight for faith in your love. That we will not be overcome by the burden of our own sin, but that we would let it go at the foot of the cross. For there you have paid it all. Jesus, you paid it all. So, Lord, even now, Lord, as we leave this place, help us that your word will be the meditation of our hearts. That, we will, that these truths will sink in, Lord, and we, we will worship you and live holy lives as you intended us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name.